Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. And as always on Close Reads, I'm joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's been so long, David. I've missed you. <laughs> it's been three minutes since we last tried to record and it didn't work. Third time's a charm, but I feel God, this is okay. This is just like the episode in the office where Pam won't let won't let um, Michael talk on the first time. You know, she always oh, gives yeah, she, two tries before she transits because the first two are always bad. I kept thinking of that during our first just awful, awkward talking about the weather intro. So this one's going to be good. This one's going to be so good. Boom, boom. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to count on it. Tim, how are you? <laughs> I'm great, David. How, David, how are you? <laughs> I feel like you do such a good job of asking us how we're doing. And sometimes I three, neglect to turn the question around. You know, Tim had three times to practice that line and it just, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> You not you don't believe it? Not feeling it. Hi, David. I'm fine. Like, uh, <laughs> I, can we workshop that line? Because I'm just not feeling it. There's a lot of different ways one could could offer that line out to an audience. But the whole like good day, good day, sir. Is it a good day? Are you wishing me good day? <laughs> Tim, to answer your question, I'm doing well. I'm feeling much better finally. Uh, I have I, I had that whatever that was that flu like thing for a while there, and it has since it lasted a couple of weeks off. for you. Yeah, it, well, the flu turned into the sinus infection, which is what was, yeah. which is what got rough. So the antibiotics, uh, thankfully, it is 2018, and we have antibiotics to heal our various maladi- maladies now. So I love uh, maladites. It's like a maladite <laughs> is what a wonderful it's a, it's a word tribe that roams America, spreading diseases. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking it's like it's it's flu in a in the form of a rock spike. <laughs> <laughs> I like you that. Can see how imaginations are. Like I'm imi- I'm automatically imagining a wandering tribe of disease just showing up to your town like barbarian hordes and like, oh no, the maladites have come and everyone's sick. That's where my mind went. <laughs> well, thankfully, there is the the wall made of antibiotic. Which can- <laughs> She's going to scare them away. Uh, wow, can, this show just us. keeps going downhill today. <laughs> is it? Is it going downhill? It feels like it's just on par with most. So we are here to talk about to talk about Howard's End by E.M. Forster. We're here to talk about chapters 6 through 10. And there is a lot we could talk about. There is... I, Angelina sent me an interesting text. I mean, well, I guess all of us on our Facebook, on the Close Rads Facebook message little thread that we have, our private thread. And Angelina, you said that the shine may have been wearing off a little bit. <laughs> wow, you're gonna I quote my personal text now. I on the don't know hey. yourself. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would definitely <laughs> make sure that you understand that anything you say in that thread, I'm gonna. I am gonna use my judgment. <laughs> will be used against you. I'm gonna have to start putting, uh, you know, OFR off the record. Off yeah, the record. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, yes, I may have texted you that I thought the shine was wearing off. Yes, I may have said that. I want to talk about that. Um, Tim, where is the shine for you on Howard's End? I, I knew it was going to be reversed. I knew it. Go ahead, say it, say it. Well, maybe I could just say, maybe, <laughs> maybe I could tell you what I think. <laughs> um, All right. I thought the first three chapters, I was like, I'm kind of, I'm bogging down here. Like the shine is kind of coming off. But I thought in nine and 10, I, I felt like I had a sense of what Forrester, where we're going in the book. And I felt like in, you know, the first three chapters of this reading, six, seven, and eight, I was getting a little bit lost. I just didn't know. I didn't know where we were going, but I feel like I, I kind of want to try out. I want to make a proposal for what I think this book is. Let me give a little caveat to say, I make it a point in close reads to not do, I don't do any sort of research about the authors. I mean, sometimes when we've already read books, you know, like Flannery O'Connor, I'd read a lot of Flannery O'Connor before, but I, I don't do any research. So I think it benefits the show if I come in, relatively naive. So this is a very naive proposal, but it struck me that this book might be, it seems like it's, it's talking at least in part about what we might today call like red states, blue states, a conflict between red states and blue states. Hmm. I recognize that's not what is happening in England in the early part of the 20th century, but it might be analogous. Analogous. Yeah. 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 Um, and I wonder, so the question that I have now is, well, the last two chapters of our reading this week are about, um, this kind of unspoken conflict between Margaret and Mrs. Wilcox. And it was really hard for me to pick up on exactly what was going on for between the two of them, because so many of the references that he makes that, that Forrester makes are very indigenous to England, like but, Herod's. I didn't really, I mean, I kind of know a little bit about Herod's as a shopping center, but I don't know enough to know, mm-hmm. is this like culturally significant in any way, or is this just a place that you go and get stuff? Mm-hmm. It's, a yeah, de- yeah. it's a department store. So, okay, <clears throat> before we dive too much into, into, into this, I got a request via email this week from a listener that we summarize the sections for the linear thinkers among us mm, was mm. the was to to do a direct quote so tim if you would um you have you have evolved into our resident summarizer so right. if you would could you sort of summarize quickly in a minute or so uh what happened in these cha- in chapters six through ten and then we can kind of dive into some of the questions that you're raising which are definitely at the core of the book as well as some of angelina's questions or at least comments about the shine possibly wearing off right and, and some of my responses to that Chapter six is about Leonard Bast, who's the young man that the girls, Margaret and, um, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Helen. Helen, Helen, sorry, met at the concert. And he comes over for tea in chapters maybe four or five. It doesn't go particularly well. He's there to retrieve his uh, umbrella. Doesn't go particularly well. He dashes off. And in six, we see him back at his own flat in a poor part of London, and we find out that he is 
maybe betrothed or at least involved with a woman who's slightly older with him than him, who also seems to be, um, well, she's lower class. Is that the way that I'm supposed to say it? She's lower class. And there seems like there's some sort of promise that's been made between the two of them, and she's <coughs> eager to hold him to it. Seven, we are back with the sisters, and there's kind of a conversation. And then we kind of move into the, we learned that the Wilcoxes, who we met in chapters one and two, are moving to London. Oh my goodness, they're moving very near us in London. And so there's a long kind of worry about what's going to happen between Helen and uh, the son, the Wilcox son. And then uh, Margaret does her part to kind of engage Mrs. Wilcox to invite her out. There's a party that Margaret uh, hosts for Mrs. Wilcox. It goes very, very awkwardly. Mrs. Wilcox is kind of... um, I think it's meant to portray like this is an awkward an awkward party in which a country bumpkin has been invited to the elite with their pinkies in the air Londoners um and she just doesn't really know how to discuss the things that these Londoners discuss she she's she just kind of fumbles around and then Margaret takes her shopping the next day and we discover obliquely that Mrs. Wilcox, really her, her life is bound up in Howard's End. And Howard's End is now, which is out in the country, Howard's End is now potentially going to be bulldozed to make flats. And this is devastating to Mrs. Wilcox. And Margaret kind of doesn't really pick up on that until a little bit later. And then we end chapter 10, and it seems like there's this possibility that Margaret and Mrs. Wilcox might be going to Howard's Inn. And especially there's this promise that Margaret seems to be understanding Mrs. Wilcox in a way. She's not looking down on her as a country bumpkin as much anymore. She seems like she recognizes that Mrs. Wilcox has invested her life in this family and in this home, Howard's End. Hmm. And that's where we conclude 10. Anything that I left out, you guys? Um, I don't think, I don't think so. So, uh, Angelina, one of the things that you mentioned that you mentioned is that you didn't love Mrs. Wilcox. And I was kind of following tracking a little bit of the conversation on the Facebook page. And there were some people who said they really liked Mrs. Wilcox. And I was thinking about how I feel about Mrs. Wilcox, um, during this section and I'm not entirely sure. So I would love to yeah. hear about what what your um, where your feelings your. I don't know if I want to say that you actually dislike her, but you seem to have some hesitation about her, and you at least you weren't tracking with her. I don't know if that's the way to. Put yeah, it. I didn't know. I didn't say that I didn't like her. I said that she did not ring true to me. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Because well, that idea. Well, let me just that idea of ringing true is a really interesting one in this in this book, and and I. I think that we're going to talk about that a lot. So I would love to hear what you have to say about that. And I won't interrupt you this time. No, that's fine. Or will I? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't mind being interrupted. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's see. How should I say this? I, I see what he's going for. Forrester, uh, you mean? 
Yes, let's see what Forrester's going for in her character. And I know that she is supposed to represent mysticism. Um, and <sighs> well, some... go on about that. How is well, she supposed to represent mysticism? Okay, so <clears throat> she has a special connection with nature. Um, she seems to have senses about people that are sort of mysterious. You know, she she knows things but doesn't explain, right? Like, how did you know this was going on with Paul? How did you know? Like, she just always has a sense of what is unfolding. She um, has a very hard time putting into words the things that she sees. That's part of the relationship she has with Margaret. You know, it's, it's always mm -hmm. like, oh, you have the words. You have the words for what it is that I see. Um, she has, uh, she's out of time, right? Um, you know, what I mean by that is like she does, she's not, of the time, there's this timelessness of about her. Uh, she has a special connection with the tree and nature, like I said, mm -hmm. um, and and so all of that is supposed to make her a, a mystical character. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. Um, and all but... of those things are true, uh, but as someone has, as someone who has more than a passing interest in mysticism and more than a passing knowledge of it, he's just off. He's off, I and mean, those things are all true of mystics, but. She do, she doesn't sound like a mystic to me. The, the, when, I feel like he is trying to create a type, and she is a type, but she does not ring true to me as a human being. There there were just so many things that she said, and I was like, nope, nope, nope. That's not how a mystic talks. It's not how a mystic thinks. It's not how a mystic sees the world. Um, I mean, I just. Well, but aren't there a wide? I mean, I don't, I don't, and I'm not meaning to be contentious, but aren't there? A, aren't there? I mean, isn't every mystic its own person? So. Well, would yes. they have their own unique voices and their own way of speaking and they wouldn't always ring true to kind of like they're not always even be true to themselves is that is that a fair thing to say and i don't i don't mean to say that you're wrong by the way I'm i suppose just... i don't know that i even have the words for it okay that was just and that's why i mean i just thought that was just a little off the record text and i, I didn't have like all I, all I mean all i mean is like i didn't have an articulated formulated opinion about mrs wilcox that that was just my first impression that as i read her she didn't ring true and that happens to me in books all the time uh yeah i suspect that's true of most of us like i and i don't necessarily i mean eventually i might have the words i don't have them yeah. right now but there was yeah. something about her that seemed off in the way that forster is is um portraying her well lucky for you this is not a book that has a lot of mrs wilcox in it so terribly boring angelina why why is she a mystic and not just intuitive oh i mean all this all the scholarly work calls her the mystical character they, you know they they break down all the characters mm, okay uh, a scholarly work about the forester about the book itself mm -hmm. yeah yeah um okay so um forester seems clearly as you put it to be working or employing types like even the two sisters in their own way are kind of types. Um, do you, do you find either of you that the relationship between Margaret, I guess they start calling her Margaret and um, Mrs. Wilcox. Do you find that that also rings true? Like, is that is the kind of back and forth tension connection thing going on there? Is that, is that ringing false to you as well? And is that why the scenes are boring, you think? Or is yes. or is what they're talking about not interesting? No, I, I think that I don't feel the draw between those two women, all right? The whole thing hinges on they're drawn to each other and there's this awkwardness that they can't overcome. But I don't feel the pull. 
Do, do you think Which maybe that- that's just my problem because I don't, I don't, I can't see why Margaret would want, would be working so hard to be close to this woman. I don't feel the draw to her. What about you, Tim? Do you sense, do you, can you, can you understand the draw? The appeal? Uh, I'm, I'm really sympathetic with what Angelina says, because I, it's interesting that Forrester, when he does draw, when he does describe the attraction um, that Margaret has for Mrs. Wilcox, he doesn't do it through dialogue. He kind of stops the dialogue and he says, this is what Margaret is feeling. So I found it kind of, so it's a little bit like the action stops and Forrester has to tell us what's going on. Whereas in the previous scenes, to some degree at the party and when the girls are talking about um, uh, Leonard Bast, we get it through dialogue. So yeah, I'm sympathetic with what Angelina said for that reason, that he has to pause and kind of editorialize about what the attraction is and he can't show it to us. Well, why, so why does, why does Margaret pursue this relationship? I mean, I guess I wouldn't say she pursues it, but she certainly, she sends the letter, which she kind of realizes was probably the wrong thing to do. Um, and then it seems like she isn't even that sure that she wants to, you know, the, for the, for their relationship to grow. Like she doesn't seem like she cares that much about it, especially early on. Um, she's, you know, she, like she says, I'm not, she doesn't want to go out to their house and things like that. There's yeah. a reluctance about it. So why do you think that she allows herself to get sucked into that? So to speak, Angelina, do you have any thoughts on that or Tim either way? Why did she get sucked into the, like, Mrs. Wilcox is sucked into what, David? The relationship with Mrs. Wilcox. Oh. I took it at the beginning. I don't know what you think, Angelina, but I took it at the beginning is she's kind of trying to do damage control. You know, this this terrible thing happened between Helen and the Wilcox family, and now Margaret is going to pay... pay um, she's going to call on Mrs. Wilcox to do damage control... And the party is another effort toward damage control. But then it seems like at the end of 10 or during 10, it actually, there's some sort of connection. There's something that Mrs. Wilcox has that Margaret doesn't have that she seems to want, that she wants from Mrs. Wilcox. Something Margaret wants from Mrs. Wilcox. Like yeah. What? What do you think that is? I'm not sure. I just think that it's centered around Howard's end. Hmm. It has something to do with Howard's end. It maybe it's it's more than family. It's more than um, a connection to a place. I assume Angelina is completely right. It's like there's something that's gonna like we're going to discover is that there's some sort of mystical understanding that Mrs. Wilcox has because I'm so early in the book because I've read no critical um, interpretations of what's going on. It just, it strikes me now presently in the book as some sort of kind of intuitive sense of, Oh gosh. Well, Angelina, do you, do you kind of read these chapters then as, or at least so you know some of this part of the narrative as sort of just forced her moving us from one place to the next in the novel. 
I'm not really sure what the purpose of the scenes are. I mean, I think that we are, I think we're to believe that Margaret is drawn to Mrs. Wilcox in a way that she doesn't understand. That um, Margaret doesn't understand. Yes, a way that Margaret yeah. doesn't understand. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Because she very she's fumbling over herself, you know, and um, I think that damage control is the is the front, right? Uh, but it's not it's not the real reason because of course once she's in Mrs. Wilcox's presence, she's like, oh well, of course, of course, I knew Paul was out of the country, and of course Helen is out of the country, so of course it's completely bizarre that I told you we should make sure they never meet since they're not even in the same country. Like, you know, like all of that just fell apart when she was in Mrs. Wilcox's presence, which of course that's another like sign of her mysticism that all of the artifice just fades away and she can see to the heart of the matter, you know, that there's that realness there between the two of them. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I was wrestling with what is the point of this interaction. Then you said, you don't think Mrs. Wilcox even comes back in the story. So and her her function then must be for something about Margaret's character. And so maybe that's what we'll see. Maybe something has been born here um, because we're getting a lot of Margaret's interior life yeah. in this section. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, she struggles with the fact that Mrs. Wilcox calls her innocent um, uh, mm-hmm. and sort of naive. And she's like, I'm 29. I've been running my own home for 10 years. I've raised these two people. How dare she call me innocent? But, I, but also I am, I am innocent. <laughs> so, <laughs> So uh, maybe that's the point. Maybe it's one of those characters that just, you know, come up against you and now you have, oh, which would, that would be very true of a mystical character as well. That something about Margaret herself would now be revealed to Margaret now that she has been in the presence of Mrs. Wilcox. So maybe there's seeds here that are going to go somewhere else. Maybe down, you know, maybe 10 chapters down the road, I'm going to say, oh, that's what those scenes were for. That's, Hmm. I really don't think the conversation and all of that, which felt so plodding and slow to me, um, is the point. I, uh, the point was Margaret is fumbling over herself and, and feels unsure, is drawn to Mrs. Wilcox, you know, that whole, no, of course I don't want to go to Howard's Inn and then taking off after her. And you know, obviously there's something else is going on. Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting that is kind of, it's under the surface, even as it's been, I mean, it's, this has been stated multiple times, but it's kind of boiling under the surface. Is this, is this sort of, it's the idea that Margaret has been Margaret and Helen have sort of been alone for so long that Margaret has had to raise her siblings that there's this sense of um, like that'll make you grow up really fast, but it also takes things from you. Right. About, about, well, especially if the oldest huh? Right. Um, and so that, like that, that about her, I think is kind of boiling under the surface and is sort of waiting to become, um, a part of the narrative, like a, like a bigger part of the narrative. And mostly it's just kind of been told us, told to us as a, as a side by the narrator. Um, uh, does that make sense? The, to, yeah. So there's this sense of, um, her, she never, she grew up quicker. She was forced to grow up more quickly in a way that other people didn't have to. And so she, in some ways is more sure of herself because mm-hmm. uh, and of her own capacity and capabilities and intelligence and things like that. Um, because she's sort of cultivated um, an independence in herself and in her home. You can even see it in the kind of conversations they're having, which is based and where Wilcox is really the only, uh, well, I don't want to say she's the only adult because Margaret's obviously 29, but she's the only person with like real experience in life. Um, everyone else thinks they know what they're talking about, but their scope <laughs> knowledge is very limited, but, but they've, cu- she's Margaret has cultivated that sort of independence in their home 
but at the same time, um, for all that independence, you know, there's a portion of her that is lacking. Well, what, I think what, what you, seeing, go ahead, Angelina. I think what you're seeing is that, um, I mean, the opening scene that we have of Margaret, right, is that she did not go on the trip because she's taking care of the little brother. So this is somebody who has put her own needs and desires on the back burner and is the caregiver for the whole family. So mm-hmm. like you're saying, in one way, that's going to that's gonna grow her up. But in another way, it's going to mean that she is not in touch with herself and her needs. So possibly this interaction with Mrs. Wilcox is setting her on the course of that. Like, I don't remember this novel enough to know, is this a coming of age story about Margaret or not? I think it's both girls. If I, if I remember, it's been such a long time. I don't really remember what happens, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the direction it takes. She's, she's lacking a certain self-knowledge. That's why the comment from Mrs. Wilcox about her being innocent strikes her as both being true and false. I love the idea of a character or a person in general being capable and independent, but yet not having self-awareness, like true self-awareness. I don't mean like lacking self-awareness, like Michael Scott in the office, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, but I just think that's a very, that's an interesting idea that someone can be capable and independent. Um, and yet not know themselves. And I think that that makes for an interesting character with lots of possibility. I think that's a great point, Angelina. Yeah. And it also might be connected to leisure because he's making so many comments about the leisure class and Mm -hmm. opportunities they have for self-development and growth that others don't. And so Mm -hmm. part of what would have been taken from Margaret is leisure because she becomes the caregiver. She's the mother now. So she steps into this role of caring for this. It's it's all very outward focused, right? I'm taking care of everyone else. Mm -hmm. I'm getting Helen out of her scrapes. Tibby is a giant baby who is feeling ill all the time and and, uh, aware of her own needs. Do you think she sees in Mrs. Wilcox like a mother? Well, either a mother or the opposite, like someone, another person to care for. Like instinctively, is it possible oh. it could be that she sees this person who's lonely, well, or alone anyway, and when she finds out that she's alone and she's been sick and she like stays in bed, needs these these days in bed, don't we all? But, you know, she sees that and it triggers or becomes something where she, it's almost like a cause for her. And Margaret's all about causes, like ideologies and things like that. Is that, mm. am I reading too much into that, you think? I read it the opposite. I think you can make a case for what you're saying though, but I read it the opposite way. That what is drawing her to Mrs. Wilcox is that Mrs. Wilcox is, mm. is, is a mother figure. Mm. And, and her, um, Margaret and Helen's mother died when they were very young and then the father died later, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. I think they were still pretty young when the father died though. Right. Right. Well, I, it was the father, was the father, did he die or the mother die in, was it in childbirth? Is that, am I? I can't even remember. <laughs> I feel like I read that, but you know, so let's talk. So. I want to kind of shift gears here a little bit, unless Tim, you have anything to add to this. No, no, no. Let's talk about chapter six. One thing you did say, Angelina, and this was also off the record technically, but you said that you really liked those first two chapters of first two paragraphs. The first two paragraphs of chapter six are extraordinary. Yes. And I stand by that. I got stars all over the place on this page. Yeah. There's a lot of beautiful writing here. Um, And then it Mm -hmm. leads us into this whole scene with, with um, Leonard. And it's, it's such a weird chapter in some ways because one through five, Leonard's just in it barely at all. It's all about Margaret and um, Helen and the Wilcoxes, I guess. Chapter seven through 10, the Mar- it's about the Wilcoxes and Margaret and Helen, right? But then in, in between that, we have this kind of random chapter 
that is about Leonard, but it's also goes on and on about all these kind of philosophical ideas. Do, do you think Angelina or Tim, that part of the problem with this section that you had was that this chapter kind of altered the momentum of the first five chapters of the book and took us somewhere else and then tried to bring us back to where it was before. Yes. I, yeah, I would, I, would, I would agree with that. I, yeah. I, I, think I, I think I said that to you earlier in the text that I just felt like it slowed down so much. Like it was going at this great pace and then it just slowed down. Hmm. And, so, and I'm okay with that if it's intentional. Sometimes it's intentional, you know? Yeah, yeah. Trying to you mean of... it's intentional and generally like, let's pump the brakes a little bit because we yeah. don't want the pace to carry us away. Well, you know, like a piece of music, it speeds up, yeah, it yeah, slows yeah. down, a crescendo. Yeah. Sometimes an author is, especially in poetry, they'll, they'll add a bunch of syllables and make you, to make you slow down. I didn't get the sense that this was, I'm going to intentionally slow you down so you can really reflect on this section. You know, I, there, I, I wasn't sure why it got so slow. I just there is definitely an abruptness to it. Even oh, like I'm that. I'm so glad I wasn't the only one who felt that. I thought maybe because I read it when I was sick. No, no, no. I mean, like even the first paragraph or the first sentence of chapter six. So you're getting this forward momentum of the story and this little moment of conflict, right, with Leonard at the end of chapter five. With and the umbrella scene is actually it's sad and funny at the same time where she like makes fun of his umbrella saying, oh, it couldn't possibly be yours. I'm sorry. And then it turns out it's his and he grabs it and runs off. Uh-huh. Uh, it's sort of like, it's sort of funny, honestly. It's sad at the same time. Um, but then chapter six begins with this very abrupt sentence. We are not concerned with the very... Yeah, point. what a sentence. What a stark sentence. It felt like a bullet. Oh, it was so good though. They are unthinkable and only to be approached by the statistician or the poet. This story deals with gentlefolk or with those who are obliged to pretend that they are gentlefolk. So we're getting this instance that we keep getting. I mentioned this last episode. We keep getting these moments where the narrator kind of like pulls us out of the story. So it's giving us his opinions or her opinions or however, you know, we'll see. Um, That's true because he basically repeats this later out of the mouth of Margaret, which it flows a lot better, right? When she's just talking to the aunt about how we don't realize that we stand on money. And so even mm-hmm. when we're not thinking about it, we cannot think about it because we have it. That yeah. was all great. That was great dialogue. I loved that. It, but this approach, this whole like way of telling the story is, is odd where the narrator this, just pulls us out and talks to us and then has the characters say the same things. Like I know he's preparing us, um, but there's a formalism to it that is odd. I think well, it makes me wonder though, if this is just one of the issues of the transition of the narrator over the, over the whole development of the novel, you know, Could, yeah, Could be, like yeah. how you had all those super awkward 17th century novels that were just epistolary novels. Cause they didn't know how to handle the narrator. They didn't know how to handle point of view. So it was all just letters and it was so awkward and so contrived, <laughs> right? Every, right. Every, everybody had a letter about everything and a diary entry about everything. Um, and now his, here's his diary entry so we can know what he's thinking. Right. Um, and, and so, and then they move away from that, but, but again, they still are not, they still haven't mastered the omniscient narrator. So you have the, you have the author speaking directly to you a lot. And, um, so I, I'm just wondering if some of this is transition, just not, does that make sense? Like just still yeah. trying to figure out how do you, how do you tell a story? How do you. It's just so, it's so, okay, so. Um, you like in I, literary history, you mean, Angelina? Yes, in like yes. literary history, this is a transition. Right, because a Victorian yeah. novel, as we said last time, is a very, very preachy. 
you know, dear reader. So he's not doing that. Dear reader, we are not concerned with the very poor. Like that would be a sentence that George Elia would say. <laughs> she would just put dear reader at the front. But, it, it, you know, choosing your point of view is very, very difficult. And um, David and I were talking about Ernest Gaines a few weeks back because he was in the program at Stanford with Wendell Berry. And Ernest Gaines was the writer in residence at the graduate school I was at. And I ran into him many times at the post office and would chat with him about his books and everything. And uh, one of the things he, he, he said was that um, for his book, A Gathering of Old Men, which has a, just a fascinating narrative structure, every chapter is told from the point of view of a different character. And it's not, it's not, it's not letters or anything. It's all, um, it's all this first person narrator, but each chapter is a different character. So what, what the story was, he wrote the entire novel from one person, one character's point of view, read it and was like, nope, it doesn't work because he can't know this and he can't know that. And I got to get huh. inside this character's head. So then he wrote the whole novel again from another character's point of view, ran into the same problems, wrote the entire novel over and over from every character's point of view, finally figured out the only way to get it right was to let them all tell the story. Hmm. which is just fascinating to me to think about the question of how do you tell the story? Who, who knows what, because all of that is going to limit your, you know, it's going to limit the plot. Do we know what's going on inside of everybody's head or do we not? Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you don't want to know. Sometimes the story requires that you don't know. That's part of the tension, right? Yeah. Everybody's kind of talking past each other and you don't know what's happening. One, I think that this is one of the underrated things about Jane Austen is that for her time, she was so she was able to craft uh, narrative voice and perspective that in in such a consistent way um, that that was uncommon for that era, and I, and I think was kind totally, of revolutionary. Totally, because she's uh, way way before the Victorians, who are considered the masters of the novel. Yeah. But she, you're absolutely right. There's, she a, there's a consistency it. in her, in her and, perspective. And, but she masters it without that awkward reader. Reader, Mr. Dorsey was admiring Elizabeth's fine eyes. Yeah. That's how George Eliot would have totally written that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a difficult, difficult technique to master. Mm -hmm. Even just from a writer's point of view, what an extraordinarily difficult task. Where to place your narrator? How close to the characters? How far from the characters? Below the characters? Above the characters? Does the narrator have a personality? Is the narrator uh, attempting to be a mere journalist who reports what the narrator sees? Yeah, a terribly difficult task. And it's all the more impressive. Now, I like, even though we might find this at the beginning of six clumsy, I like the narrator's voice. The more that I hear from the narrator, I, I, I appreciate the narrator. There's a little bit of snark. There's a little bit of wit and wisdom that I'm, it's really, I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it too. I, I like him. I like the first two chapters. I mean, two paragraphs. One of the things that's interesting is how, in a way, it feels like it's purposefully disorienting because on the one hand, the, the narrator knows everything. You know, it's omniscient. this is an omniscient narrator. But then he keeps kind of switching to 
describing scenes or conversations in such a way that almost feel like you're supposed to have a limited narrator. And I think the yes. fact that it's jumping back and forth, I'm sure it's on purpose, but it's a little bit disorienting. Mm. And it's one of the things that I think takes some time to settle into. And that's why when it shifts to someone like a scene about Leonard shifts so dramatically, I think that's part of the disorientation that happens there. I wonder if it's one of the things that when we get to the end, we'll be able to say, oh, no, I was totally wrong. He was completely in control of that narrative and he was slowing us down on purpose, you know, or he was making us awkward on purpose. I'm not far enough in to be able to say, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where kind of that's where I am. So, well, what, let's go back to this beginning. This this disorienting line: We are not concerned with the very poor; they are unthinkable and, not, and only to be approached by the statistician or the poet. This is a strongly put line. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, thoughts. I'll open the floor. What? What's? I mean. What does he mean? What's the purpose of this? How are we supposed to feel about it as the reader? Are we supposed to like Leonard? Are we supposed to be condescending towards him? What all these things are the questions that are going through my mind as I, as I've been thinking about this. Um, I think this is one of those lines where I could just sit there and fill a whole yellow page of yellow legal pad (laughs) with questions about what I'm supposed to feel or think about what's going on here. David, tell us what, what was your initial reaction? Just your gut response. Um, huh. <laughs> that was my initial response. Yeah. Um, because the book sets its, it, the book is setting itself up to the first five chapters. It feels like it's setting itself up very purposefully to be this sort of story about equality, um, about how the divide between the upper class and the lower class is, yeah. is bad and how, you know, poor Leonard and, you know, he should be brought, like, it seems like Margaret and Helen are trying to bring him into their world, but then they're kind of condescending and you kind of feel like you're judging them at the end of chapter five. And then chapter six comes along and it says, nah, I don't think that way. You know, it tells you he's being just as condescending as Margaret and Helen, or at least Helen was um, at the end of chapter five. But then we get into this, this chapter about Leonard where then it feels like you're supposed to be getting to know him and you're supposed to feel something for him. And it's sort of this Dostoevsky in chapter. Yeah. Um, and so it c- feels like it's kind of pulling you back and forth in terms of what the novel is trying to do. And um, when it says we are not very concerned with, with we're not concerned with the very poor, you know, um, it, it's one of those lines. It's like, wait, what do you mean? We, <laughs> yeah, that was my question. Also, I was like, who's wait, who is the, we here? Who's the, we, Oh, he means England, right? I mean, that's how I read it. It's a totally snarky comment on England. But I, it also, so that was my first impression. Then I got thinking about it and I started thinking about this idea of voice and perspective. And it's, he's just, it could be saying that, but he also could be saying that this particular novel is just not concerned about the very poor. It's concerned that's what about, I, I took it as it's the not concerned narrator. With the very poor or the very rich. It's concerned with the people who are kind of in between battling it out. Yeah. Um, I might be wrong. That's I took it after I, I, I read we, okay, wait, who's the we? And I read it a couple more times. And I think I said, I think this is the Royal narrator. We, well, cause he does say this story deals with gentle folk. I read it both ways though. Right? Like it's the, Oh, it could be both I, for I, sure. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, I'm not writing a book about the very poor because you would not read that book. You don't want to have that conversation. So instead I'm going to show you, the story of somebody who's just on the edge of gentility, which is a much more powerful story anyway, because we tend to romance and, you know, 
what he's saying about the poet. They, they romanticize the poor, the very poor. And I, and I also couldn't help but think about the Victorian tradition, right? So you've got the several reform acts that happen, and debtors' prisons being closed down, and um, the very poor is a big concern of the Victorian novelists, mm. Charles Dickens and all that. I mean, yep. they're, just, yep. they're writing about that all the time. So he's, he's in that tradition saying, you know, this is not going to be a Dickens novel. This is not going to be about Oliver Twist and orphans living in the orphanage in the poorhouse and debtors' prison. This is, this is about somebody just on the edge who can't quite make it and the torment that is his, which is a different kind of torment. I mean, yeah, I really like who, that actually. Who are obliged to pretend. I like what you're saying though, that the poet, the, the poet romanticizes the poor and the statistician, um, what dehumanizes? Dehumanizes, it? yeah. yeah. They're both, De- but they're both dehumanizing, right? To romanticize is to dehumanize, says the romantic, but still, yes, it's true. It's true. It's because I see everything as a type. So I can totally say that that's true. I thought when I read that first paragraph, well, especially the first sentence, I thought of Dostoevsky's first novel was called Poor Folk. And it was very much a, the type of novel that Angelina is describing. You know, there's this kind of a description of what a, kind of like a romanticized poor family's life is like. And what's interesting is once Dostoevsky went to prison, he was arrested and there was kind of a charade of uh, that they were going to put him to death. And instead of putting him to death, they sent him to prison. And I can't remember how many years exactly he was in prison, but his romanticized view of the very poor was kind of ripped away from him when he was in prison. And so he forsook that mode of writing when he came back out and all of his great novels were written after that time in prison. And they don't typically do the traditional, Oh gosh, whatever we're going to call it, the the novelistic approach of a slight romanticism of the poor showing concern, using the novel as a means to, you know, reform society and draw attention to social ills. And that's the end of my story. So I'd like to talk maybe about something else now. <laughs> no, um, I was trying to think. The Dostoevsky comparison is interesting, especially for this chapter. Because the whole time I was reading that chapter, that's all, all I could think about was Dostoevsky. It felt like Dostoevsky. Um, but the rest of the and book what, doesn't David, what about it felt like Dostoevsky? I don't like the mood, like the tone, like this, the, yeah. the, the, the female character. What, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, yeah. What is her name? Uh, shoot. He like the fact that he's reading Ruskin and like the way he thinks about himself and yeah, Dostoevsky characters let's read um, Ruskin, but but just the Pushkin. Way, they read Pushkin, not Ruskin. The the, the description of the um, of the flat being dark as well as stuffy, um, I, all that kind of stuff. The way that the way that he interacts with her. And it's not like it feels so fake. This I don't know. Yeah. All that stuff felt very Dostoevskyan. Um, Jackie is her name. Jackie, Jackie is yeah, yeah. Leonard's love interest. Yeah. Uh, Angelina, what is the what do you read as the purpose of this chapter? Is it is as far as the fact that he's trying to get us to know uh, Leonard so much and that he 
kind of drops us into Jackie's world as well. How does, what does it feel like the purpose of it is? Um, I think he's giving us the inner life of somebody who's struggling to, to get something just out of reach. Um, it's a, this is a different sort of character, you know, like coming out of the Victorian tradition, you have a, a lot of aristocrats, um, I mean, I guess there are some stories about people feeling shut out, like Jane Eyre. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot. Okay, there's a lot of stories about women. I'm, I'm thinking through this as I say it. There's a lot of stories about women being shut out and having very few options, and so they have to become governesses, right? There's just very few options for a woman who wants to better herself in the world. This is interesting because it's showing us a man who has very few options, and huh. you know, I, I love that he's spending his evening. Um, reading these books and wrestling through them and trying to figure out how to apply Ruskin to his day-to-day -day life. And, but, and, but then also his thought process, right? Like if I, if I buy this book, I, I have to walk home. If I, if I, um, you know, if I go to see this opera, then I can't pay for the gas in, in the heater. Like to, to see that kind of thought process is fascinating also, because of course it goes in direct, direct contrast to what Margaret's going to say about we, we float along in life because we're floating on money and we don't even realize it. Like when you have money, you don't realize that you don't think about money. Um, mm. It's only when you don't have money that you think about money all the time. Um, but, but it's fa just absolutely fascinating to think about someone being willing to sacrifice physical needs, right? Like a, like a, <laughs> like a taxi cab ride home <laughs> or uh, mm -hmm. putting on the gas or, eating right he goes without eating um so that he could have art and literature and music but that is that's amazing but also to see him be so frustrated with it and that it's, it's out of reach it, i i think leonard is a, is a fascinating character and um a few people on the facebook page made the connection between what's happening here in charlotte mason and how charlotte mason is arguing that the arts are ennobling for everyone that everyone should have access to the arts which i thought was a just a great connection and really really interesting to kind of pull all these things together i mean england during this time period going back about 100 years with the first reform act uh, i mean that's their thing they are reforming they are social reformers these are these are the kinds of questions they're they're raising you know and so charlotte mason was definitely in that tradition art for everyone not just for the for the aristocrats it's, it says he felt that he was being done good to, and that if he kept on with Ruskin and the Queen's Hall concerts and some pictures by Watts, he would one day push his head out of the gray waters and see the universe. What's the line about how democracy hurts him? Where was that? That was fantastic. Yeah, Democra there was a line somewhere. I have so many passages. You think it's in chapter six? Well, I don't see it. I don't see where I put that. But do you know what I'm talking about? There was the... There was the line about how democracy had erased certain lines and made it harder on him. Uh, where was that line? Well, there's the there's the stuff about Miss Wil Wilcox being glad she doesn't have to vote. Is it is because they kind of talk about that there in chapter nine or whatever? I'm sure that I marked it. Hold on. And you think it's in. Angelina, I, I, you think it's in his voice it, maybe or while it's we're not. with him? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a conversation they have. I can't find it. 
Well, he does, you know, one of the big, one of the big themes so far in the book is the idea of aspiration. So Leonard's got this aspiration to make something more of his life. And, um, everybody, I mean, it's, I mean, that's what people do, but everybody's got some kind of aspiration that they're working towards. Right. And I think one of the questions is what exactly is it that Margaret and Helen are aspiring to? Are they aspiring to maintain the life they live, the lives they live? Or is there something bigger that they're aspiring towards? And see, that to me is, seems like one of the things that's underlying Margaret's character when she talks about money. Cause she talks about, she talks about how, Oh, we have money. We can, we're never going to have any issues. Right. But, and so the idea implicit or implicit in that is the idea that, oh, we don't have to like push towards anything. We don't have to work towards anything, but it doesn't seem true. Like that, I, that she's saying that doesn't mean that she believes that or that that's not some, some longing in her to push towards something higher than just being comfortable and having money. Does that make sense? And it feels to me oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. under the surface is this desire um, or this aspiration for something more which is why she and her sisters, you know, she, I guess they got that from their, their father. They, they're pushing in all their conversations. You know, they're so consumed with these ideologies and it's, it's because that they understand that there's something, there's more than just the comfortable life that they're already living. Um, and, and David, I took um, that desire as kind of finding itself in Mrs. Wilcox. She clearly has something bigger than she's living, that she's living for. Hmm her family, there's something about Howard's Inn for her that it is more than just their home. It's, it's the center of her being. Mm. And, and I think that, it's hard for centered, Margaret. That idea of being centered around on Howard's and like that her being is centered is an interesting one. And I, the close of chapter 10 is a lot of the reason why I think that the, it's almost worth reading that closing paragraph. Um, so this is after Mrs. Wilcox and her husband and daughter walk off. Uh, the voices of the happy family rose high. Margaret was left alone. No one wanted her. Mrs. Wilcox walked out of King's Cross between her husband and daughter, listening to both of them. Hey, Angelina, mm-hmm. not, to, not to move away from what Tim said, but I found your line. Oh, where oh, is good. it? It's in what the first chapter? second paragraph of six. Had he lived some centuries ago in the brightly colored civilizations of the past, he would have had a definite status. His rank and his income would have corresponded. But in his day, the angel of democracy had arisen in shadowing the classes with leathern wings and proclaiming all men are equal, all men, that is to say, who possess umbrellas. And so he was obliged to assert gentility, lest he slipped into the abyss where nothing counts and the statements of democracy are inaudible. Yes. Yes. As he walked away from Wickham Place, his first care was to prove that he was as good as the Miss, Miss Schlegels. Mm. Well, yes, of course, right? To, to be standing next to the real thing is going to make you feel like a shabby fraud, mm. which is, I mean, that's why he leaves with the umbrella, right? And then as he's walking away, he says, they're probably not real ladies anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, they would have never invited me to tea. <laughs> yeah. And like, then there's a formalism, a, a, a formality in the way he speaks to people as he's walking down the road. But then he gets, you know, you know, this sort of the things they're talking about and Cunningham's talking to him about the future of England with the population and the, you know, the, the pleasantries he offers to Daltrey and Mr. Bast and all these people that he comes across, but then he gets into his apartment and that facade kind of melts away. And there he is with this 
strange woman that he doesn't really know that he loves or whatever. And mm-hmm. so he's caught between, oh, there's this great line. Um, uh, where is it? But, um, Some are, it was no good, this continual aspiration. Some are born cultured. The rest had better go in for whatever comes easy to see life steadily and to see it whole was not for the likes of him. Um, I can't find the exact line I'm thinking of, but he's, it's, there's this dichotomy between what he aspires to and the way he lives. So like he can sit in this room and make this kind of measly dinner while also quoting Ruskin. So that dichotomy is like, he's so aware of it. Like there's a self-awareness to him. Oh, yeah. That yeah. And that's why there's all this horrible embarrassment when she comes in, right? Like this, this, she, she's the spotlight on the lie. And of course we don't know what the backstory is, how they got involved in this, how he ended up, you know, in this situation where he's made this promise because that all of that seems to run very counter to who he's trying to be, right? He's trying to raise himself up in the world this is not the woman she's tying him to down help him do that. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I hope we hear more about how he's gotten himself into this situation, but he's also got this sense of honor, right? He's not going to jilt her because yeah. this is what he's struggling with. Right. And so me, I don't know. I don't know. There's this sense that speculate what their backstory is, but there's this sense that he knows his, I don't know. I don't, like he knows his place, but won't accept it. If that makes sense. Like he knows what's expected of him and wants to do the right thing about for his place and his lot in life. But also, you know, he talks about wanting to come to culture suddenly, like a revivalist comes to Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was so good. Um, he did believe in effort and in a steady preparation for the change that he desired, but of a heritage that may expand gradually, he had no conception. He hoped to come to culture suddenly, much as the revivalist hopes to come to Jesus. Those Miss Schlegels had come to it. They had done the trick. Their hands were upon the ropes once and for all. And meanwhile, his flat was dark as well as stuffy. I can't help again going back to this idea of leisure, right? Like people who have leisure are able to slowly and steadily absorb culture and be yeah cultured right and here he is literally doing it in his spare seconds Hmm. and trying to you know put a whole lifetime of leisure he's trying to be the self-made yeah yeah Yeah. he is yeah it's so admirable and so sad it is it's so admirable and so sad Hmm. it makes me think to return to my little analogy of red states and blue states that if Mrs. Wilcox is from a red state, if the Schlegel sisters are from a blue state, it seems like he's caught in the middle because he doesn't have his own family. He doesn't have his own, um, he's kind of tiptoeing toward a family with Jackie, but he doesn't want that. But he also doesn't have the sort of, leisure time that would be required to become to enter the blue state so he's kind of this purple character and i'm curious about what's going to happen to him is he going to get is he going to be i I think of these two big glaciers moving and he's kind of caught in the middle the two big glaciers being the schlegel sisters the wilcox family he is neither he's kind of aspiring to be one is he going to get rubbed out in the middle and just end up being kind of the detritus of the story is he somehow going to move into some sort of life like the 
Schlegel sisters. He's a wild card for me right now. I don't know what's going to happen with him. One of the things I'm thinking about is Leonard is not exactly with the girl next door that he's expected to settle down with into his station in life, right? That's not what we have here. This is definitely a scandal, and he knows it. This is why he's lied to the neighbors and said that they're married. She is clearly, as Forrester puts it, past her prime. So what was the draw here? Like my, I, Again, I don't remember what happens, and I don't know their backstory, but I wonder if there was something very shiny about her that made him feel like she was an entryway into another world. Oh, and, right, right. And, and it doesn't turn out to be like he thought, because she's not a wife. She's not cooking dinner. I mean, she's very... <laughs> It's a lot of histrionics here. She comes in in her bow and so I'm so tired. I'm going to go lie down and you do love me. Right. And just the whole, it's just very, it's very over the top. She's, she's, this is not the representation of that, that what he's being tempted toward is, is the very you know, ordinary work a day, middle-class life that he's expected to have. And then he's fighting through that for some cultured life. That's not what's being set up here. He's living in an illusion in this apartment with this woman and now the now the mass the is beginning to fall, fall yeah. off. Well, yeah. She obviously is very anxious that he's not going to do right by her. Surely she sees this, you know, that he went surely she has seen before this scene his sort of gravitational pull toward a life more like the Schlegel sisters as a threat to her. Absolutely. That's why he says twice, I didn't go anywhere after. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. I promise, dear. It's all okay. So do you see the Wilcoxes as supposed to be between the Schlegels and Leonard as far as their sort of status, or are they a higher class? Because it seems like in some ways, um, well, obviously, um, it's not really, it seems like the Schlegel whole clan, the, that whole expanded clan there, including the Germans, they all kind of look down on the Wilcoxes for being in the country. So how are we supposed to look at the Wilcoxes? Like, what is their status? So the Schlegels are definitely the leisure class, but the Wilcoxes are not. They're much more of your up-and-coming middle-class family. They have money, but they would have earned it. So they're, you know, not, not, not coming out of that aristocratic gentleman, we don't, um, we don't, um, you know, we don't earn our living. We're gentlemen. It's ungentlemanly yeah. to have a job. Bertie Wooster. Yeah. Yes, but now yeah, there's, yeah. there's a very interesting comment on that, however, right? Because it's the Schlegels who modernity is pushing out. They're the ones losing their family home for the flats to be built. And of course, that is the tension in England at this time. And that's why P.G. Woodhouse writes this stuff he does, speaking of Bernie Worcester, right, about the passing away of the arist aristocracy. You know, what is their function anymore? They get, they get overcome overwhelmed as a class by the the rising middle class with money and power and well it's a whole shift of power away from land um toward capital and so you know the middle class rises that's a whole other history of the rise of the middle class starting with the plagues right that's a long story but uh once you move wealth and power away from money it changes the whole um you know, landscape of the British economy and as well as the aristocracy. So I thought that was a really interesting comment that they're the ones leaving their family home. Yeah. yeah. Losing their family home rather. Now it's Mrs. Wilcox, however, who had the Howard's in. So, so, 
you know, Mr. Wilcox married into that, but they are the, they are the up and coming modern family. The, uh, and you mean the Schlegels are losing their home, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To, to progress. To progress. To, Ugly to modern flat. flats. Yeah. Which that's a big deal in England. That's not just a literary device. That's a big deal. I mean, gosh, there's songs written about it, poems written about it, movies about it. But, you know, the it's, ugly flats, the ugly architecture that takes over England. It's the conflict around the kilns right now. What where, do you mean, Lewis, David? where Lewis lived. They're putting all these apartments and flats in around there. And it's oh, kind of really? pushing up that. against the kilns property. So a lot of people, there's been this thing, like a petition going on, on the internet to keep them from to kind of preserve the serenity of the place. I don't know all the details about it, but yeah. Well, I'm putting my bid in right now for an apartment across the street from CSO. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> no, the rest 10 of four, please. <laughs> Penthouse view of the pub. <laughs> well, we should um, wrap this up. So I want to, any final thoughts from either of you? or any lines or anything like that that you just want to draw attention to as people are. I'm feeling a little better about this section. I did 11 through 15. Quite Ill, so. Yeah. I felt like you were coming around. Like it's maybe the shine is starting to. I didn't enjoy the back. Mrs. Wilcox stuff, but maybe if I, maybe now that I'm thinking about that, it's more about Margaret. Cause I quite like Margaret. Well, at the beginning of chapter 11, we're going to get another abrupt sentence that's going to take us in a new direction. So we'll Ooh. talk 11 through 16. Um, Tim, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, chapter 10. Mm -hmm. This is, this is uh, when Mrs. Wilcox and Margaret are heading toward shopping. The air was white, and when they alighted, it tasted like cold pennies. I thought that was a lovely sentence. Cold pennies? Cold pennies. Hmm. Well, you know, money does pad the edges of things. God help those who have none. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your sentence, David? Well, yes, but I, I do like that sentence. But there was a line that I really liked. I think it's the beginning of chapter seven. Yeah. Um, so they're talking about Wickham Place. Um, uh, let's see. And he it, it just, it says... Well, I don't, I can't, I have to look into the, whose point of view we're going from here, but it says the passenger lifts, the provision lifts, the arrangement for coals were all familiar matters to her and perhaps a relief from, and this is the part that I love, the politico economical aesthetic atmosphere that reigned at the Schlegels. I the politico economical aesthetic atmosphere. <laughs> That's going to be the name of my next Cersei talk. That, and that, <laughs> I, I, I'm so fascinated by the, the idea that, certainly with their father's prodding or whatever, but these two women and this sickly boy have, these two young women have created this atmosphere in their home of, that is described as politico-economical aesthetic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Lots of hyphens in that. I just think I find that fascinating. I'm gonna, yeah. I'll keep an eye on what that, if, if that gets defined more for us. Okay, Man, I have a final, final thought because I forgot I wanted to say this earlier. Yeah, go uh, for it. When y'all were talking about how Mrs. Wilcox said she was happy not to have the right to vote, that... Uh, I think she's being portrayed as very otherworldly. She's just not concerned about worldly con things, right? So she doesn't, she's not able to participate in any of the political conversations or the cultural conversations of the day. And that's why she would be happy not to have to vote. That's just not her sphere. Mm. I didn't and think I, that it was a, a necessarily a comment on women's suffrage, just more like probably she's like, why would anybody want to vote? Yeah. So glad not to be bothered yeah, with yeah, that yeah, conversation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
I think that's true. I, I, when I mentioned that earlier, I didn't mean to imply. No, I didn't think that you did, but I, I wanted to make sure we drew it out that, that this is just part of her overall otherworldliness. And I, for me, Angelina, I mean, again, having never read the book, having read no critical commentary, I just, I'm not seeing her as a mystic. I'm just seeing her as new money from the country. Coming, having come into London, city of cities, being kind of bombarded by all of these socioeconomic, ideological, you know, assessments of the world. And she's just, this is just not the world that she's been living in. Maybe I will come around and I'll see her as a mystic, but I, for right now, I'm not seeing it. Well, it is at least, well, I mean, Angelina is giving a name to a type. And it's so... Um, Yes. Okay. So it might be overstating it to say that she's a mystic and maybe perhaps it's just better to say she has a mystical connection with people and nature. Like, are you, so it might be that there's a matter of how we're defining exactly how we're defining mystic or like some, mystic, subtle, right. some subtlety and how you understand those things. Um, but I agree with that. I think that she does have a, she seems to have a connection with the way, I mean, I think Tim's use of the word intuitive is fair. But I think you're taking it a step further, right? So Tim said she's intuitive. Well, it's, it's very, it's very similar. It's very yeah. similar. Yeah. Mystics are also called intuitives. So we agree. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see. I, maybe I just have a picture of what a mystic is. For me, I think pseudo Dionysius. I think kind of like the classic. Um, I don't know the classic. There's going to be a lot of, of people abstinence from the world who are going to weigh in on this. Yeah, you're going to be Tell me what mysticism is. Mysticism and trying to figure out which one they agree with. The definition of a mystic is the person who sees the river flowing under the river. The definition of a mystic is a person who defines mysticism as the river which is flowing. <laughs> and right, right. As soon as I said it, I said, as defined by a mystic. So there you go. <laughs> well, I think that that's a good place to stop here. Uh, Tim and Angelina, Tim, I know you've got things to do, so I want to let you get to that. Angelina, I know you need to rest, so I'm going to let you get to that. Uh, to everybody who has been listening, thanks so much for your feedback and your conversation. Thank you. Um, it's As always, it's great to talk about these books with you guys. The hour-long conversations we have, or hour-ish long, are only a part of that ongoing conversation. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. Uh, thank you to everyone who has been contributing uh, on our Patreon page and who's been patronizing our, uh, our, our show. Um, your support is, is, uh, is wonderful and we're thankful for it and is enabling us to keep doing these shows. So um, I'll keep every show. I hope if I, if I, forget, if I go a show without saying thank you for that, I've done you a disservice and so just assume if I do that, it's because I am a lacking show host um and just missed the boat on that one um i guess that's it angelina and tim both got to say final thoughts would you say like to say goodbye Any, anything else you want to add here before goodbye, i buy close readers <laughs> for angelina stanford and for tim mcintosh for all of us here at cersei thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time on close Reads.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.